The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. So, one, two, three... Well, Paul, we scared my cats. <laughs> <laughs> Just two black cats shut off into the distance after we clapped. <laughs> Audience, for those who are joining us, uh, this is our recap extravaganza. Paul and I, before we start the recording, we have to clap to sync things for our, our audio editor. And uh, I guess it sent Paul's cats scurrying. So uh, welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, joined tonight by my great friend and everyone's favorite primary care doctor. Paul, I think we're calling you America's favorite primary care doctor or or America's primary care doctor. This is Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing tonight? I'm great, Matt. I think no one is saying that except for you. Um, I don't think this is going to catch on much like National Treasure, but I I, I appreciate the thought. How are you doing? I need to... I, I need to just put it in more intros, and I think I think it's going to start to trend on Twitter. <laughs> well, the way Twitter's Maybe going, it doesn't count for much, but we'll see. <laughs> uh, and on on tonight's show, Paul, we're going to recap a bunch of episodes that aired in 2022. Um, but Paul, before we get to that, will you remind people what is it in general that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure, Matt. In general, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. As you mentioned, this is our our end of the year recap spectacular or something along those lines. There's probably some more words in there where it's just basically the two of us talking about these great episodes that already kind of came and went. So the experts aren't with us except um, in our hearts and souls. But we'll be talking about the episodes that really were impactful to us and maybe sharing some of our favorite clinical pearls from each one. And I should mention that uh, conspicuously absent from this uh, is the great Dr. Chris the Chew Man Chu. Chew Man, we love you. This year we just, we just. This is kind of a last-minute de- decision to record this, and for scheduling, we were doing it without Chris. But uh, this, Chris conceived of the idea for this show uh, way back, like five, six years ago, when he first joined Curbsiders. Um, so shout out to him. He's now spending a lot of time doing the Cribsiders, our pediatric medicine uh, podcast. But Paul, you know, I, before we get to some of these pearls, I wanted to just quickly say a few things. I mean, this has been an amazing 2022. We made about 60 new episodes this year, Paul, which is that's way too many. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, just, it's a lot. That's a lot of uh, content. Uh, I think the audience appreciates it, Paul, but it's it's a lot of work. They and we made over 40 hours of CME, Paul, uh, between, and that's that's just this show. If you count the miniseries, it's it's probably more than 50 hours, maybe 60. We did 24 issues of the Curbsiders Digest, or I should say Nora Toronto, uh, Alyssa Mancini, Alex Chaitoff, and a bunch of other people have contributed to that consistently. Great job by them. Uh, the show has now been downloaded, Paul. In the history of the show, over 35 million times. But Paul, because of the rate of growth of the show, uh, almost 11 million downloads in just this year alone, Incredible. which is insane. So yeah. like almost a third of our, you know, yeah. So we're, I guess we're still growing and it's it's really, uh, it's really still moving, Paul. Um, sometimes much to our surprise. <laughs> <laughs> the dismay, what have you. So uh, I, I think that, but I, I think the reason for that is, Paul, is because like we we are internists, our audience are internists, or they're interested in internal medicine, and we we have 
questions that are just legit questions that you would have doing this job every day. And I think that's why the show hits home because all the people that make this show are clinicians that want answers to these questions. And that's how we choose our topics. We have 35 team members. Uh, these range from medical students all the way up to attending physicians. Um, they, we all we have a Slack channel where all of us are contributing ideas. We have people that are doing artwork, infographics. They're writing, producing. They're helping to co-host and edit the show. It's a, it's a whole production. And without all their work, Paul, none of this would happen because you and I, <laughs> we are no longer capable of doing this nope. <laughs> by ourselves. So I, I, I would also like to just say that in the past one and a half years, We've we've really launched a couple new shows. Um, we we just started a hospital medicine series this year, which Moni Got Money Amin and Meredith Trubit have been heading up uh, with lots of contributions from Cyrus Askin, um, Adam Borelski, um, who often appear as co-hosts on that. And then with the two mini series, the Curbsiders Teach, that did two seasons, Paul, and that's Molly Hoibline and Ira Krizhnovskaya, which is. I'm, I'm getting good at saying Nicely that done. name now, yeah. Paul. And then, uh, so they finished two seasons of that one and the Curbsiders Addiction Medicine, brand new this summer. If you haven't heard it, check it out. Amazing um, series. They go over all the addiction medicine topics led up by Carolyn Chan with friends, Kenneth Morford, Sean Cohen, Natalie Stahl, and Catherine Mullins, Kat Mullins helped uh, review a lot of the episodes there. So, so much exciting stuff happening at Curbsiders. I can't believe, Paul, that we started this seven-ish years ago, as September That's 2015. Crazy. took like six months to get off the ground, but uh, it's going. <laughs> Paul, any, any thoughts? I know, I know, Paul, you're, you're usually, uh, you're usually well-spoken. I can't say the same for myself. <laughs> uh, thanks. Any reflections on 2022? I, it feels haunting like 2021. I will say, you know, as you mentioned, we're both, I don't think we like to admit it, but like, we're like mid-career faculty pretty solidly now. Like we're in the middle of our <laughs> career. We're, we're screaming towards death is what I'm saying, Matt. And I don't know how, I, I don't know that I have the energy to sort of maintain any kind of expertise or be excited or curious without being inspired by our team, uh, like, at least in the same way that I am now. Like I think being surrounded by by you and the rest of the team that just are really interested and excited about medicine every single day and are really passionate about things. Like it, it, it keeps me excited and interested and I, I just cannot... You know, on an individual level, be so grateful to our team and our listeners and the show for making me care about medicine. Um, because I, I think it's easy to kind of take your foot off the, the gas at some point in your career, but in large part because the show has required, I've been able to sort of continue to pay attention and sort of keep current. So I'm just I'm very grateful for that. I will also say, and I don't want to take too much time, but the, the joy of seeing our individual team members continue to progress in their own careers and sort of make these new things like the like the new series and seeing even some of our team members kind of go into fellowship this year. There's just been a lot of really exciting transitions and it's just, it's, it's great to even perfectly be involved in that kind of thing. So it's just been gratifying all the way around. And I, I will lastly thank all the people who've doing those downloads. Maybe it's my mom 30 million times. Um, but <laughs> but I, I would like to thank our listeners who are so engaged and so excited and are always sort of reaching out to us and encouraging us and thanking us for what we do and, and also keeping us honest. So I just, I, it's been, I'm eternally grateful for the show and for the listeners and for the the community we've created. Yeah. I echo all of that. And Paul, you know, it's the new year. So not to brag, but I, I already have, Paul, I already have a date for New Year's <laughs> oh, Eve. God, I hate this so much. Yeah. Uh -huh. Paul, it's December 31st. Great. All right. Uh, <laughs> if you want to add a drum, if you want to add a drum noise, uh, a drum noise in there, that would be great. And Paul, you know, New Year's Eve is a big drinking holiday. 
right? <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. That's all I've and, heard. And Paul, I, I just worry about you, so try not to make any poor decisions, Paul. Ah, with a U. <laughs> yeah, with a U. Great. Because you, you can't say poor without you. Excellent. All right. So, you know, there's some more, Paul, but uh, if people, people can check out uh, uh, 33newyearspuns.com if you, if you want to. That's a .com? (laughs) Maybe it's a .com. There's Uh, a website devoted just to New Year's puns? Tell me that's real. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's, (laughs) yeah, actually, actually, yes, Paul. There's, it seems, you type in any, any topic and puns, there's a website for it. Yes, it seems that's the case. Now that uh, we're bleeding listeners, let's get on to our first episode. And a lot of these episodes are ones that aired earlier in the year, just because we've recapped a lot of the more recent episodes on Tales from the Curbside. So swinging back here, the first episode, Constipation, number 314, our guest was Dr. Zhao Jing, Iris Wang, and was produced by Elena Gibson. And Paul, what, one of the main things that I remember from this is that that you know, most patients are going to be okay with just like a laxative trial. You know, you don't have to go through all that fancy testing. Um, at every patient with constipation doesn't need like a colonoscopy. In fact, that's often not even part of the workup at right. all. Um, so, but the way that you can recognize patients that have like defecatory dysfunction or pelvic floor dysfunction is the patient that says that they're straining a lot that she, she described it as doing toilet yoga they're saying they always have this sense of incomplete evacuation. You know, those are patients who might benefit from actually uh, pelvic floor physical therapy or more simply, Paul, uh, the Squatty Potty. I know that's a brand name. If they want to sponsor the show, that would be fantastic. <laughs> we are open. Uh, but Paul, what, the Squatty Potty, any of your patients, have you, are you recommending that? Was this chain, I, practice changing for you? It was not as much as it probably should have been. I will say that patients have actually uh, come to me and said that they tried it and it was like sort of life-changing. They volunteered that on their own. So it's um, so I think the positioning stuff is, is incredibly valid and important and easy, um, or at least easier than the pathway we may send them down. So it's a nice sort of low-key intervention before we kind of uh, proceed all the way to defecography and some of the fancier tests that we might actually have. This feels like a nice um, immediate first step. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think I think with constipation, um, trial of the lax- laxatives we we talked all about that on the on the episode senna bisicodil um the peg polyethylene glycol or milk of magnesia magnesia she said are, are some of the ones and then paul the kiwis two kiwis a day uh without the skin that's uh that those that works pretty well too that was uh that was, I think that was more of a blockbuster from 2021, but you know, still we talked <laughs> about it on that episode yeah. too, on this episode as well. Any, any other things about the constipation episode that you wanted to, to talk about there? I mean, that those, I think those were the ones just not missing the defecatory disorder, the pelvic floor dysfunction, which I think is probably more common than, than we recognize, but any, any other thing from that one or should we move on? I, I, I think so to speak, it is probably time to move on. Okay. So number 317, erectile dysfunction. This was featuring uh, Dr. Ashley Winter produ- with production by Hannah Abrams and graphics by Kate Grant. And Paul, you know, I know you have a favorite pearl for this one, so I want to give this up to you. And, and how about we use our old, uh, our, this this device that I've developed. This is my patented <laughs> teaching methodology. Yep. Paul, if someone has erectile dysfunction, 
I should not at all worry about cardiovascular disease. There's no relationship, correct? Oh, this is pedagogical wizardry. That is, um, <laughs> that is actually incorrect, uh, Matthew. And this is, I mean, this is a tip that we talked about, I think a couple of times. And I, I think it's hugely important. We were talking actually off air that we both um, really emphasize this as well, but erectile dysfunction can pre precede cardiovascular disease or sort of other more scary cardiovascular disease by up to five years. So it's, this is something I talk to my patients about all the time, and there's a great body of literature to support this, that if someone presents with erectile dysfunction, that really should prompt you to evaluate their cardiovascular risk factors. It is a great time to have that conversation about tobacco cessation. It's always a good time to have that conversation. It's a great time to emphasize lipid control and blood pressure control and controlling diabetes and really sort of optimizing cardiovascular health, because this might be the harbinger of, say, coronary artery disease or, God forbid, stroke or something along those lines. So this is, this is your chance to really... Uh, partner with the patient to work on things that are, are important to you both to address sort of all of your concerns. Um, so it, it's, it's just, it's a point that I raise over and over again. It's, it's a great chance to have uh, a broader conversation about uh, preventive care and health maintenance. Yeah, the, this was, I, I did not know these statistics before we did this episode. And now I do have a bunch of patients that are, you know, in their 40 to 60 range, erectile dysfunction, and they are not metabolically well. And I'm being more aggressive about talking to them. And this is a good bargaining chip. Yep. You know, it gets people's attention. Let's say that. So I, I do find it to be helpful in counseling people. The The other thing, Paul, you know, Every late night comedy would lead me to believe that <laughs> uh -huh. if, if if anyone takes uh, sildenafil, tadalafil, that they will immediately uh, have an erection that you know is is a problem for them if they're in a public place. Is that true? So it's it's apparently wrong on a couple of fronts, which is reassuring. So it, my doctor Winter informed us that these PDE five inhibitors they're they're only helpful in the setting of um, of arousal. So it's not like you take them and then you're sort of walking around um, with priapism, which is sort of the other point that she made is that priapism is yeah. actually probably a far less common side effect than we give her credit for. I think, I'm not sure about your practices, Matt, but I was counseling patients about that, about the erections lasting more than four hours, go to the emergency department every time I prescribed it. And I still mention it, but I, I'm now much less concerned about it because evidently it's not nearly the concern um, that I was right. worried about. Yeah. And that's the big joke. Patients all remember that one too, because it, they yeah. say it on the TV commercials and patients are like, well, I'm not having any erections. So if I could have one that lasts four hours, that sounds, <laughs> doesn't sound right. like a problem. No one's ever mad. Or, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And she made the point that it's more the like injectable medications where that seems, seems like it would be more of a risk factor. Uh, and speaking of the, the, the PD5 and PDE5 inhibitors, Tadalafil it wasn't as much on my radar. She was very enthusiastic saying that she, her patients have had good results if they have both BPH and erectile dysfunction, that the daily Tadalafil has been a good medication for a lot of them. And I have since used it in a couple patients and had some success as well. So maybe if, if people didn't hear this episode, haven't tried that, that, that does work. And, um, it's, it's a good option for, for those patients. Uh, any anything else on this topic, Paul, or should we should we move on to an episode produced by you, number three twenty, palpitations? I, I love the palpitations episode. Let's let's talk about it. So our guest was Dr. Josh Cooper, uh, and production and graphics were by Edison Jang, and of course, uh, production help by Paul Williams. So, Paul, how do you go about deciding when someone says they have palpitations? How do you go about deciding, like picking out which type of monitor you're going to get the person, how long they're going to wear it for? Yeah, it's a golden age. I, I think you'll agree. I think when we were in training, we didn't have 
really a whole lot of short-term options and the options that we had were like bulky and really like they're like honest to God yeah. vests that you actually had to wear as opposed to now where you have these patches and devices that kind of stick on your chest and you can kind of set it and forget it that are not so bad. But to, to get to your question, the the way that you would choose um, a device or a, a monitoring device really depends on the frequency of symptoms. And if so, if someone's having symptoms four or five times a day, you know, 24 to 48 hours of like short-term monitoring with a, with one of those uh patches is probably sufficient. Uh, but you can even wear, you know, there are 30 day patches that you can wear, which would certainly be appropriate for someone who has symptoms, say, once a week or once every couple of weeks or so. For those patients where you're suspicious for some sort of arrhythmia, but it happens relatively infrequently, but is also scary. Like, so for instance, your patient with unexplained syncope, that's probably more when you're having conversations about the implantable loop recorders more so than like um, one of the shorter term monitoring devices. But it's just we've got a yeah. lot of great options that I, I think you pick and choose from largely depending on how frequent these the symptoms are occurring. Is that consistent with your practice? Yeah, absolutely. And I and some of the articles that I was going through in pre-reading suggested that a, a two-week monitor is often the sweet spot for, right. you know, you'll you'll pick up a lot of things in on a two-week monitor. But if, if the patient's having symptoms every day, the 24 to 48 hours should be sufficient. And yeah, I, I, so I agree with what I agree with what you were saying. And then the patient that has PVCs, because a lot of the times you'll get this report back. Sometimes it won't have been interpreted yet by the cardiologist. And if, if the PVC burden is greater than 10%, um, those are patients that really should be seeing cardiology, electrophysiology, because they might need some sort of intervention because I think they're they're just at more at a higher risk group. Um, and and then the other group he said is people with frequent PVCs, if they have underlying ischemic disease or structural heart disease, those patients as well would be a higher risk than, your, than say like uh, a 25-year-old who's healthy, who has 1% or 2% PVCs. That's not necessarily somebody that needs anything to be done about it. Right. And Paul, has this, this, has this changed how you talk to people about, let's say someone has like uh, AVNRT, like a supraventricular tachycardia, has this changed the way you talk to patients about that? Like the, he, he gave us like a couple options. Um, from, I, I don't know if that's changed your conversations at all. It is not so much because to be honest, um, partially because I work with Dr. Cooper, who's amazing. So and if they're at the point that they're having that conversation, they're probably having it with him if we're being perfectly honest. Like after, I think yeah. if, after that diagnosis has been made, a lot of the times that conversation is being had with electrophysiology, but it was, it was a helpful framework. Yeah. So he, he basically said he gives them three options. He'll say, uh, and I think it's useful to know, like if you send someone to EP that they'll probably have some version of these three options, which is like, okay, if they're having supraventricular tachycardia, the option is, or, or just PVCs that maybe they're, they're feeling them, but they're not frequent enough, you know, 2% PVCs. So not, not necessarily you have to do anything, but if it's bothersome to the patient, they see cardiology, cardiology may say, well, we could do nothing. You know, you could just know that you're going to get that, or we could try putting you on a medication like a beta blocker or something, or we could, option three would be, we could try to do an ablation or take you to the lab for a study and see if we can figure out where this thing's coming from. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a shared decision with the patient and the, and the electrophysiologist at that point. I think the success rate for the ablations, especially for the the SVTs, is like extraordinarily good, if I remember correctly. Like depending on who you ask, but we're talking sort of upwards of ninety percent. So it's if you if you choose to go through it, I think those procedures are fairly effective. And 
the the other thing that surprised me that Dr. Cooper said is that because I I asked him about the wearable devices, just expecting that he'd be like, oh, those are the bane of my existence. He's yeah. like, actually, I don't mind them. He goes, if the patient has that, they can print out uh, they can print out the rhythm and they can show it to me, and I can either say, oh, this is junk, or or it might be some useful information. And I I think that that um, I think that's an interesting area we're going to get into. I think just just we will know more precisely when people are having arrhythmias, I think, going forward. I, I imagine cardiac monitoring is going to be pretty standard for probably lots of people because most people are wearing smart watches. And I think we'll, we'll touch on this in a different topic, but I also appreciate that we should not be dissuading patients from being invested and interested in their own health. So like, I think if yeah. someone comes in, we should not be dismissive or be like, oh, that dumb thing. Like, I don't think that's a helpful way to frame the discussion, especially since someone's being an active participant in their own health, I feel like it's it's good to be open right. to that and sort of use the tools that they're that they're bringing us. the The next episode is another cardiology topic, number three twenty one, hypertension. Uh, some frequently asked questions. This was featuring Dr. Jordy Cohen with production and graphics by Malini Gandhi. Um, Malini Gandhi, Paul, breakout star on the show this year. Just it's a whiz kid. One of my many kid. future bosses, but yeah, I look forward to working. Um, under her benign reign, whenever it happens, which will be just a matter of time at this point. <laughs> so the one of the things that just stuck out of my head is she described this casual office blood pressure, which is where the patient's like sitting on the exam table, so there's no back for them uh, to rest against, their feet aren't on the floor, and uh, the blood pressure reading there, maybe they're talking to the MA as the blood pressure is being taken, and you just, you can't, that's not how... We don't base our blood pressure targets on blood pressures that were measured that way. So the, those would not stand up for a clinical trial. And uh, really making sure that you're getting good blood pressure readings before you're making changes. Paul, how are you How are you getting blood pressure readings outside the clinic? Are you rechecking them in there? Give give the audience some tips. Great question. I, well, it's, and everyone's practice flow is going to be different. And I think we, sure. we often sort of offload much of... Um, pre-work on our medical assistants and sort of our frontline staff. And so I think patients are going to be talked to while they're getting the blood pressure because we're just giving our medical assistants and other support staff a lot to do. And I just, you know, I, I just think it's just sort of yes. the way things are sort of optimized. So the way, so I, I don't, I think the casual office blood pressure is going to be a fact of life because it's, we, what we do is relatively high volume. Um, so to get around that, I, my, my practical technique in the office, I, I will look at the reading and, and frankly, if it's normotensive, I'll say, shoo, that's good. And then I really worry about it so much, but if it's elevated, <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll have my visit. We'll have the conversation. We'll talk about the plan. And then my move is, all right, I'm going to go get your papers and get some things together. What I'd like you to do is please make sure that you have your arm out of your sleeve and I'd like you to sit there quietly. Do you need to use the bathroom? No. Okay, wonderful. So I'll use the end of the visit if I know they've been sitting and talking, like I know they've been sitting peacefully, they haven't been moving around and give them a chance to kind of equilibrate. I'll go get paperwork together, come back and do a recheck myself with their feet supported, with their back against their chair, with their arm at heart level, not talking and really give myself my best chance. Outside of the office, uh, we talked a little bit about this. I think you probably do a better job with this than I do, but we, you know, I think we're starting to appreciate the role of home blood pressure monitoring or out of office blood pressure monitoring. Mm -hmm. So I, a liberal use of cuffs, which are, you know, are not frequently covered by insurance, but aren't usually not probably expensive. And there's websites that you can look at to actually find ones that are decent and do a little uh, counseling about when to take it and how often. So I will tell patients first thing in the morning before they eat, after they've emptied their bladder, um, <laughs> before the cigarette and the same thing, the same rules apply. Make sure that you're seated, make sure that your feet are flat on the floor, make sure your back's supported. Don't let anyone talk to you. And if you can do that a couple of times a week, that's great. If you can do it twice a day, um, first thing in the morning and after dinner, that's even better or before dinner, that's even better still. Um, but 
more often than not, if I, if I get just a few sort of sporadic home readings, I'm still happy. I don't know, but it sounds like you have a better success rate in terms of getting your patients to do. I, I, give this, I give this similar counseling. I, Dr. Cohen said she likes to get six readings, you know, over the course of a week, at least six readings. So I usually ask patients, you know, check it once or twice a day over the next week. I send me at least six readings. And if you have a patient portal that works, uh, the, a lot of my patients will send me the readings through the patient portal and then I can message them back whether or not I want to make any changes to their pressure or if I need to call them. But and, and you can also set reminders in the chart because especially if I'm really worried about someone, I will sometimes set a reminder, like remind me in a week to call this person and make sure, so I make sure they get their blood pressure readings because it was like too high for me to be comfortable that they just go home. I didn't want to send them to the ER, but yeah. I, I want to make sure that I, I close the loop on that. So those are some tips. But yeah, I do think home blood pressure monitoring is great. And validatebp.org is a website where people can go to look and see which cuffs are uh, are recommended by the experts in blood pressure. Now, Paul, if for me, I, I want to tell you one thing that changed my practice, then I want to ask you some, uh, something else. The low-dose combination pills, you know, that was, those were up front in the International Society for Hypertension Guidelines from, I believe, 2020. And Dr. Cohen said she's also a fan of those because the low-dose combination, you're less likely to get side effects. And also you're more more better chance that you will hit the mechanism of their hypertension if you give them agents that work by different mechanisms. So I like that. And I've been using a lot of the low dose combination. And usually your choices are they have the, the calcium channel blockers, diuretics, or ACEs or ARBs in combination pills. And now, Paul, I know it's easiest to get a combination pill probably with an ACE inhibitor and, and hydrochlorothiazide, but you yeah. know, and that's okay. But uh, Paul, why is an ACE inhibitor not your first choice? It's I, I great. I love that framing. Thank you for setting me up, Matt. And I, I will say I do struggle with the combinations because I they don't tend to include ARBs as commonly. And I ARBs are my first line choice if we're sort of talking about either ACE versus ARBs. There have been, I think most recently there's a meta-analysis this year, I want to say, that actually sort of combined, that, that, that looked at both the, the benefits of ACEs versus ARBs compared to the, the potential harms. And it turns out that ARBs do all the things that ACEs do um, like they are, are renal protective and they, they help with systolic heart failure and they kind of, they do all the stuff that we like. They are, are, are great for patients who have diabetes and on and on and on. Like we know these things, but ARBs tend to have a much favorable side effect profile compared to ACEs. So you're not going to see, um, angioedema nearly as much. You're not going to see cough. I think cough is like astronomically lower with ARBs mm -hmm. than are there with ACEs. GI bleeding, which was nowhere on my radar is less common with ARBs than they are with ACEs. So I, I think given the choice, um, I, I'm going to go ARBs 10 times out of 10. And I just, so it's, I, they're, they're always, they're my preferred, I, their first line, I think even for most of the guidelines, like you're not, you're allowed to use the first line. So they're what I reach for much of the time when I have the, the option, yeah. but unfortunately they're not really available in many forms, at least on formularies that I deal with in, in combination. Yeah. There are some ARB calcium channel blocker combinations that I've been, yeah. that I've been using, um, you know, telmasartin amlodipine is one of the ones out there. I know uh, Dr. Cohen said there's an olmasartin uh, amlodipine version that she likes. So there, yeah, there's there's a lot of them out there um, that you can try. And one of the other things she she differentiated, and we're going to spend a little more time on this one because it's such a common topic. Low sartin, Paul. This was this was something I didn't. I really thought all the ARBs were created equally. I didn't really differentiate them. And she gave us a couple pearls about that. So what about low sartan? How should we be dosing that? 
Yeah, it's so Losart, and I, it, again, I'm sure this varies by geography, but it's the one that's invariably available and covered by most insurances. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's the one I tend to reach for. And and Dr. Cohen just kind of casually threw out there, but that's really should be a twice daily medication, which immediately made me feel stupid. Um, and it's so I, I am now actually being more for patients that I think can be adherent with it. I'm now actually prescribing it twice daily when that's the herb that I reach for just because yeah. it, it does tend to have sort of more consistent coverage over the course of the day. And it, it is what people can also afford. Um, yeah. So Losartan is now probably one of my more preferred ones. Uh, Valsartan has some availability, but is it tends to be a little bit less potent. And then the the longer acting ones, I think are very formulary dependent in terms of like the Tolmosartans and the Omosartans and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do you have, what are you, what are you reaching for when it's ARB time, Matt? No, I, I, I run into the same thing. Uh, Valsartan, less potent, uh, but it is long acting. It, it tends to be cheaper and in combination with hydrochlorothiazide. That's one of the ones you can get. Um, and so, so low sardin or val sardin are often the workhorse ones, but you just need to know that for patients, some patients might need a more potent one and some patients might need twice daily dosing of the low sardin, especially if the once daily is not cutting it. So I, especially if I'm either on the 25 milligram, the lower dose low sardin, I will often, um, you know, add that second dose. Just in increase the it twice daily. Yeah. 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 We talked about CKD4 because that was always, you know, the once the EGFR drops below 30, I'd get very scared about prescribing ACEs, ARBs, diuretics. Um, I was thinking thiazides won't work, so I have to use a loop diuretic. Yeah. And Dr. Cohen really opened that up there. Um, she actually encouraged us. She said, actually, ACEs and ARBs can still be protective um, and, and help, uh, prevent progression of renal disease. So you, you can still use them in patients with CKD4. You do have to watch for that bump in creatinine. If it goes up more than 30%, you have to worry about bilateral renal artery stenosis, and maybe it's not a great choice for them. Right. The other parameter was potassium up to 5.5. She was okay with, but, uh, you know, you really do have to monitor the creatinine, the potassium and make sure that, it's you're not having any wild swings there. Um, the other thing, Paul, the click trial that was with chlorthalidone. Yeah. Have you have you used chlorthalidone since that in in any patients? It's, I I am now more liberal with chlorthalidone in my CKD, my more advanced CKD patients. I I think we've we talked about this a fair amount in that I think the traditional teaching was it's just not as effective in patients with more advanced mm-hmm. chronic kidney disease, and it turns out that it, it seems to work just fine, and doesn't actually cause problems. Yeah. So it's it's nice to have a medication with which I have comfort for that patient population that often has harder to treat hypertension. So I, I do, I'm still, yeah. I still respect chlorthalidone. I think like we talked about with Dr. Joel Topf, you know, years ago, like I still tanked potassium and you really have to watch electrolytes and stuff pretty carefully with it, but it is, Absolutely. it is effective for the, for patients with CKD three, four. Yeah. So before you reach for hydralazine, think about yes. ACEs, ARBs, <laughs> yep. chlorthalidone in your patients with CKD. Let's and, put the clonidine uh, down for a hot minute and yes. have options. Yes. So uh, I, I thought that was all really great. And then the final point I wanted to make on this, because we talked a little bit about resistant hypertension, and I, I do tend to see a lot of patients where they have this, I, I send, I'm worried about primary hyperaldosteronism. I, I order an aldosterone and a renin, and the renin comes back suppressed, but the aldosterone is like normal or even even low in some some sense. Um, she mentioned this concept of salt sensitive hypertension and some of the agents you might want to use. Paul, have you, have you used any of the mineralocorticoid or amylaride since, since learning this? I 
am more likely to reach in general for spironolactone. Like that seems to be my sort of go-to as choice. For some, you know, it's one of those things where if you've not prescribed something frequently, you're less likely to reach for it. So milleride is not one that I'm just gunning for, though. God yes. help us. The nephrologists are really trying to talk us into using it. So they are. <laughs> so it's, they, it'll come one of these days. But I, but I do reach for the MRAs if I suggest that someone's hyperaldo, which is as as we've talked about before, is probably far more prevalent than we give her credit for. Yeah. How are you yeah, so, now when you're looking for it though? What what kind of investigations are you looking for, and what kind of parameters get you excited these days? You know, this uh, we we have an episode coming up on adren uh, an adrenal episode coming up, and we're planning a Neff Madness episode, which may cover uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists. So I'm still working this out because I I generally look for an aldosterone above 15, certainly above 20 would get me, you know, concerned for primary aldosteronism and a renin that is suppressed or undetectable. Um, you know, that that's what I look at more so than the ratio. Because um, the ratio... The ratio, as was mentioned to us on a way, way back Curbsiders episode, there's certain renin assays. So you have to make sure, depending on the renin assay, that could affect the, the ratio. So it's better to interpret them kind of, you know, together, but not necessarily look at the ratio. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm doing. That's the best answer I can give you for now. But uh, I'm excited to learn more about this on some of our upcoming episodes. So let's leave hypertension and... I think we can get on to H. pylori. This is episode number 322 with George Safori. This was produced and with graphics by Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And this was actually pitched by a listener in our, our listener pitch contest, Paul, which happened way back. <laughs> Anna Maria Keelhauer Verona. And Paul, you know, before you test people for H. pylori, I want to make sure patients are not taking proton pump inhibitors uh, not taking antibiotics, and if they can get by without them, a, even H2 receptor antagonists, Dr. Safori mentioned, um, reading about it, some people say it's okay. His practice was, he's like, I'm not sure. Some some of the literature has suggested maybe it's a problem, so he doesn't like to do it. Um, so at least, at least one to two weeks, they should be off all these medicines, but um, a, a lot of the guidelines would tell you at least a month off antibiotics, yeah. H, H2 receptors and, uh, or P, H antibiotics and PPIs. Um, and then Paul, are you confused about which regimens to, to treat for H pylori? I mean, it's, it's kind of dizzying. Matt, I hate to say it, but even if we did 27 episodes about it, I would probably still have to look at the doctor up to the algorithm just to make sure I'm actually picking the right one. So I, I, I will... Yeah forever find it bewildering, even though Dr. Sephori did a great job of sort of teasing things out and sort of talking about which he uses preferentially and what's okay. I still, it's something I'm going to have to look up every single time because there are certain facts I can't make stick in my brain. And this unfortunately is one of them. Yeah. So let me give the audience to, if, if you're seeing someone with H. pylori, just don't start with the clarithromycin based triple therapy. I mean, that is, uh, there's lots of resistance to that. So that's not recommended anymore by the guidelines or by Dr. Sephori. So what, what Dr. Safori mentioned was that there's this bismuth-based bismuth quadruple therapy. Uh, it's, it can be tough for patients to tolerate, but that's often the first line that he's going for. And if that doesn't work, a, a next line that he would use is often the levofloxacin-based th therapy. And there was some other, we talked about this a little bit, Paul, at one of our uh, ACP recap shows, mm -hmm. uh, where actually levofloxacin um, did seem to perform well there too, but there's some newer things coming out in the future, 
So rifabutin-containing therapy, Paul, I, I probably won't be prescribing that without <laughs> conferring with one of my gastroenterology colleagues yeah, or, or ID, ID colleagues. And then there's this new agent. It's a um, it's a potassium. Let me let me bring this. I I I, I don't want to mess this up. This is it's a venoprazan. It is a potassium competitive acid blocker, and it competitively inhibits the binding of potassium ions to the hydrogen potassium ATPase, also known as the proton pump, and uh, can block that final step of gastric acid secretion. So that actually seems very promising. It's a new therapy. Apparently, they're already using it in Asia because I think um, probably H. pylori being more common there, they're running out of regimens faster yeah, than we which are. Is true. Uh, and then, so so look out for that. This venoprazan, and then finally, there's a reverse hybrid therapy. You're Paul, so excited about this just because of the name. I love. I just love the name. <laughs> so the reverse hybrid therapy is where you give a PPI and amoxicillin for 14 days. But on the second half of that 14 days, you add in clarithromycin and metronidazole, and apparently that works pretty well. So lots of options out there. Uh, the last thing I'll leave you with on H. pylori, Paul, is don't forget to retest. You want to test for cure right. because um, if H. pylori goes untreated, you know there's risk for gastric cancer um, and you, you really want to treat the, you really want to treat the, the patients and especially if they were symptomatic from it. And Paul, next up, episode number 324, Obesity, featuring Fatima Cody-Stanford and production and graphics by Isabel Valdez and Madison McClellan. Now, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but obesity, um, it's its not a chronic disease and there's no way, <laughs> it's, it's not something that we should think about chronically prescribing medication for. What do you think? I... I think that is probably not the right way to think about it. I, you know, we, as okay. we've talked about before, I, and I think that you've actually said far more eloquently than I have. It's, I think you could characterize it and sort of conceptualize it as a chronic disease state. Um, particularly it's when there are metabolic consequences. I think that's always sort of the important thing to, to remember is we're, we're trying to sort of prevent those things from actually impacting health. Um, so yes, that's right. And oftentimes for chronic disease states, you need chronic medications and chronic therapies above and beyond behavioral changes. And I, I think that's, probably the way to frame the discussion for a lot of the patients that we'll be talking to, recognizing that we're trying to prevent um, downstream metabolic effects that may that may ultimately be harmful. And the medications we talked about on this episode were, uh, we didn't talk much about GLP-1 agonists uh, or the new fancy GIP slash GLP-1 agonist uh, terzepatide, which is probably going to be approved at some point, but is not not yet FDA approved for, for obesity. It's not yet FDA right. approved for obesity, but it's their... I, I I looked just before we came on. There's a fast track application, oh, and huh. probably sometime in 2023, the the second surmount trial is going to finish, and they're expecting that that will have enough data for them to get it approved for obesity. But it, I believe it's already approved for type two diabetes. Correct. That's right. So uh, that I know that's been a we we've been getting calls from patients asking about that. You know, because it's oh wow the, these. These agents, the GLP-1 agonists and the um, and the GIP slash GL-1 agonists, they're in the news because I think celebrities are taking them for, you know, more for vanity reasons uh, than for, <laughs> you know, for obesity, health-related reasons, yeah. at least a lot of them. So uh, they are in the news, but we, we focus more on some of the lower cost generic medications. There are some of these combination pills that are branded medications for obesity, but Dr. 
Stanford said she actually likes to prescribe them sequentially. She'll prescribe one of the agents at a time. So Paul, do you want to talk about any of those agents? How about fentermine? Because this is one that I've always been afraid of. Yeah, same. I mean, this is probably the part that's been most practice changing for me. Like there's there's good evidence for fentermine and actually patients do well on it. Um, but I, I've always been a little bit squirrely about its potential impact on blood pressure and heart rate. Like those are always the things. And again, as we talked about before, if you don't prescribe something often, you're less likely to prescribe it. And that just sort of perpetuates mm-hmm. itself. But um, Dr. Cody Stanford let us know that actually the risk for hypertension and for, I think, even tachycardia is higher with bupropion, which I, I will prescribe with wild abandon. Uh, so, <laughs> so once you kind of afraid of that way, I'm like, oh, well, if that's the case, then I can be much more comfortable prescribing pentamine. You should still watch. Like, I, I don't know that I would give it to someone who has really uncontrolled hypertension. And certainly, I'm not sure I would prescribe it to someone who couldn't come back for follow-up blood pressure checks, or at least I, if I didn't have a way to kind of monitor parameters and just make sure they were doing okay. Right. But especially... You know, if you can monitor and then especially around dose increases, that's the, probably the most important time to kind of check in. Um, it, it's probably less impactful than propion, which I think a lot of us do have comfort with. So I, yeah, my, I personally changed my own habits and, and that much. I, I, I don't fire off the topiramate, um, all that honest to be, to be honest with you. Um, but, uh, but if it someone has, has migraine headaches and obesity, it's a good, you know, it's a yeah, good, for sure. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. Choice. Yeah. I do um, find the side effects from that are actually more bothersome for patients than for like fentramine. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I have, I have used, so there's fentermine, topiramate, you know, that those come in a combination, but she says she usually will start one or the other and then titrate up, see how the results are. And then she may or may not add the second one, but she's prescribing two generic pills instead of the combination, the branded combination. The other branded combination is bupropion and naltrexone. And again, she said she prescribes uh, bupropion up to, she might give 150 twice a day, and then she might add a second 150 in the morning. Um, so 450 total daily. And for naltrexone, she said she actually asked the patients to cut the pill into quarters and they'll take half a pill or a quarter of a pill twice a day, and then eventually half a pill twice a day. And she sort of taught us how she goes up on that. So these are just some options. She even said metformin sometimes she'll try, Mm -hmm. um, in some patients that does seem to help them with weight loss. So these are just other tools you can use because not everyone's going to be able to afford or access the the GLP-1 agonists or or metabolic surgery, which is, you know, using her analogy, uh, lifestyle, diet, and exercise, it, those, those are like using a teaspoon to shovel your sidewalk uh, of snow. If you have snow on your sidewalk, if you're from the Northeast, like Paul and I, she said that the medications are like using a shovel to clear snow from your sidewalk or your driveway. And the metabolic surgery is like using a snowplow to clear snow from your driveway. It's looking like as we get some of these more sophisticated agents, the, the medications may be more closer to approximate, approximating metabolic surgery, which is exciting. And yeah, uh, yeah, some of the newer data are really remarkable. And I, you know, yeah. I've had a couple of folks just describe it like, you know, quote, life changing. So it's, it's, they're not nothing. Right. And I think we're going to get to a point, Paul, where like with blood pressure, like with diabetes, the vast majority of patients, once they start medications, they will need a chronic medication to help control the condition. And thinking of obesity with the chronic disease model, they, they may need to be on a med, uh, on an agent, uh, you know, f- for the unforeseeable future. So I think that's I think that's something that we need to wrap our heads around. As do patients, and we need to do a better job about talking to them about therapies beyond just the diet and exercise, which are not really cutting it for most patients. 
I, and I do think, I'm not sure what your thoughts on this are, but I, I think even having a discussion about medications or metabolic surgery just also shows that it's something that we are concerned about and think that it is worth discussing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like diet and exercise often feels sort of pro forma as a discussion, but it'd be like, okay, I think we should actually consider a medication or to have you, you know, have a consultation with the surgeon like that. I, that seems to sort of at least highlight, like this is uh, something that we should continue to discuss that I think is important. And I think that even yeah. there's even value in just that. Paul, up next, number 326, cardiorenal syndrome. This was a Neff Madness episode. This is part of our Neff Madness pod crawl, Paul. And I think we're going to do another pod crawl for Neff Madness 2023. So let's let's tease that now. Uh, we've been emailing with Joel. So a little behind the scenes for people. Looking forward to failing just aggressively in the first round, just like wiping out of my brackets <laughs> immediately and not winning anything. It's, it's, it's a, a fun yearly tradition for me at this point. Yeah, Neff Madness is great. Uh, so audience, uh, keep, in a, keep your ears out for that one. Uh, so the cardiorenal syndrome, Paul, I, I was a physiology major in, in college. And so, you know, I love this stuff. Elevated venous pressure it, and, and venous congestion are actually believed to be the pathophysiology of cardiorenal, cardiorenal syndrome because I had always been taught it was poor forward flow mm -hmm. was the cause of cardiorenal syndrome. But it actually seems like it's venous congestion which makes sense that we spent most of the episode talking about uh, diuretics and how to how to get f the volume <laughs> off of the person. How to decongest, yeah, absolutely. How to decongest. So, Paul, let me give you a hypothetical. If I'm admitting someone to the hospital, they have heart failure, uh, their creatinine's up a little bit, I should always stop the ACE, the ARB, the SGLT2 inhibitor that they're on for their heart failure. What do you think of my practice there? I think that your practice would be consistent with what a lot of people would do. Um, and I will say that our, our experts did not think that they needed to be stopped necessarily um, as long as the patient wasn't hypotensive, they weren't hyperkalemic and didn't have electrolyte disturbances that warranted uh, discontinuation. And uh, you know, I think the prevailing wisdom right now is it's probably okay to continue those things as long as those parameters are okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think in actual practice, I wouldn't be surprised a lot of people are still stopping them r relatively routinely just to make sure they have room to do other stuff. But I... Uh, but the key point is they need to restart them when the person leaves yes, the hospital. right, right. Yes, but it's important to continue goal-directed medical therapy or guideline-directed. Yeah. So we did talk about on the episode this concept that, you know, when someone is volume overloaded, they're expanded, as you as you use the diuretics, you're, di you're use, doing your diuresis, you may see this bump in creatinine. Part of that may just be that you're removing the fluid and, and that's, that is their bait. You're kind of unmasking what their creatinine really is. Um, so that's this concept of permissive hypercreatinemia, which is hard to say. And, and we spent a lot of time talking about patient, people often are getting discharged too early probably because, or we're stopping too early because you, you did, you start the diuretic you start to see the creatinine rise, then you go, oh, I'm done. But you really have to say, what's the exam like? How's the patient feeling? What's their weight? You know, all these parameters we have for saying, am I done with the diuresis? Creatinine should not be your only parameter. You know, so if the creatinine doubles, yeah, that's one thing, you know, consult, consult right. your <laughs> friendly neighborhood nephrologist. But if it goes up by 0.2 or 0.3, you know, depending on what they're, what they're starting from, it, you can have this concept of permissive hypercreatinemia and don't underdiurese your patients. I think that was one of the big take-home points from this episode. Right, because otherwise you send them home, they're not entirely decongested, they go back on their standing dose of diuretic, which is not to diurese, but just to sort of maintain, they kind of slowly reaccumulate, next thing you know, you're seeing them all over again. Yeah. So better to, to get them as dry as you can. 
way back when we talked to Dr. Clyde Yancey about Hefpef, Paul, remember he he made a comment on the episode that sort of has stuck with me. He said, yeah, when patients are in this congestion, when they're in congestive heart failure, you really want to shut that cycle down as fast as possible because there's like bad stuff going on. I don't know if he used the term negative remodeling or just inflammation, but just he said, you want to get them out of that cycle as quickly as possible so they can recover. The longer you leave them in it, um, maybe the more damage is done in the long term. So I, I sort of think about that when you're when we're treating heart failure. Just relevant, to, not that we talked about this in the episode, or I, actually, I can't remember if we did or not. The other insanely prescient thing that he, that Dr. Yancey had said was about the SGLT2 inhibitors. Do you remember this, Matt? Yes. Where he talked about, he said, and this is years before these sort of trials came out and before this was anyone on his radar, but he said, you know, I think at some point we're going to stop seeing these as diabetes medications that have cardiovascular benefit and start seeing them as cardiovascular medications that maybe help the blood sugar a little bit. And I feel like, yep. I'm not sure we're entirely there yet, but I think we're, we're recognizing increasingly just how powerful these are for things other yeah. than just diabetes and it's, and including and, like sequential diuresis and that kind of stuff. And, th- and this was totally an accident. They were just trying to make sure they were safe for the heart and they found out that they were actually <laughs> yeah. very good for the heart. Um, so so the so you mentioned sequential nephron blockade. What does that mean? Well, we covered one of these episodes on a hotcakes, uh, on a hotcakes episode, we covered acetazolamide as sort of helping to complement the diuretic therapy you're giving, other things you can do, SGLT2 inhibitors, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists like spironolactone, um, so there's and the thiazide diuretics, of course, I think most people are familiar with those. So think about that. And then, Paul, we even talked about this concept of hyperdiuresis, where uh-huh. as like this Hail Mary pass, if if the patient is just refractory to all the diuretic therapy you're giving, you actually can give them hypertonic saline along with your loop diuretic, because apparently that giant load of sodium can like shut down the renin aldosterone angiotestin signaling somehow, and maybe it even pulls water from the interstitium and helps the patient diurese. I'm not going to try it, audience, but you know, <laughs> yep. ask your friendly Report neighborhood- back cardiologist, nephrologist, if, if they have the guts to do it and yeah. And report back, please. All right. Uh, Paul number 329 curing hepatitis C was the name of this episode with, uh, Dr. Christian Ramers production by Emmy Okamoto and graphics by Leon Chang. And Paul, I wanted to ask, so if let's say I was hypothetically seeing a, a person who injects drugs and, uh, they have hepatitis C should I offer them treatment for hepatitis C? Because I'm worried about reinfection, which I know is a possibility. How how should we handle that? Great question. Yeah, and I, it's and I think you're even framing it um, from a less puritanical standpoint than I think it was often discussed in the past. Like, why would I treat with these expensive medications if there's a chance this patient may become infected again? I think was sort of the unkind and not accurate way that it was thought of before. But I, I think people are recognizing it's better to be not infected with hepatitis C and the the less long that you are, the better off you will be. And then also from a public health standpoint, the fewer people that are out with active hepatitis C infections who maybe are sharing needles or have higher risk for, for infection, like it's better to have that population with a lower rate of hepatitis C in general. So it is not a contraindication. In fact, nay, nay, I would say it is probably an even stronger indication to offer treatment. So it's, I, I think for someone who injects drugs, who does have hepatitis C, it, they should, in the absence of other contraindications, 100% be offered treatment. Because it also yeah. is absurdly easy compared to back when you and I were in training. And since the hep C antibody can remain positive for life, how are you checking for reinfection and how often? 
Yeah, I think, and I can't remember whose recommendation this is at this point, but I, I believe it is to check a viral load on a yearly basis um, in patients who continue to inject drugs who've had to treat it for hepatitis C. But I, I'd have to confirm who said that for sure. And one of the other things that I thought was just important uh, for us to remember as internists seeing patients with hepatitis C is uh, when you when you find someone that has hepatitis C, so you're ordering the hep C antibody with the reflex to PCR, if if that PCR is positive and you confirm they have active, you know, viral copies or they have a, a high viral load, then you're going to want to stage the liver. Um, or I guess even if they don't, if they're not, if if they don't have an active infection, you would still want to stage the liver. And uh, what do we mean by that? So there's some of the calculators you can use. There's the Fib4 calculator or the APRE calculator, which uses some lab tests, which you would uh, just readily have available. Right, which you probably have anyway. And then, uh, so those are very good at identifying people who are low risk for fibrosis or people who are at high risk for fibrosis and cirrhosis. Um, at the intermediate risk, it, they don't perform as well. Um, so sometimes you might want to get elastography, which can be done with an ultrasound type thumping machine, which we've described on other shows, or there's an MR, MRI version of it. And then Paul, I, I believe there's also some proprietary tests you can order like blood tests. Yeah, it's um, I hesitate. Like, I think there's a fibro sure and a fibro test. They all have sort of fibro in the name, but I believe it's a combination of liver enzyme tests and sort of inflammatory markers that that they use to calculate a potential degree of fibrosis as well. So you get this report that kind of gives you F zero through S four and will sort of characterize the the degree of supposed fibrosis. That is right helpful and then also accepted by most insurance companies in terms of as you're kind of navigating the prior authorization process for these medications. And and most of the most of the uh, patients are avoiding liver biopsy these days because yeah. of all this testing that we just mentioned. Um, and if you do find someone that has cirrhosis um, or you're worried about cirrhosis based on these tests, these are people you should be following uh, for hepatocellular carcinoma, doing the ultrasound um, and plus minus the AFP testing. So just just remember to do that even after you've treated the patient for hepatitis C and cured them, you you still would need to monitor if they if there's someone that that has cirrhosis. Um, so that that's mostly what I wanted to go through on this one, Paul. Any other pearls on this topic before we we move on? I know we're we're coming towards the end of the of the pearls here. Yeah, I think there, I mean there's a lot to say. I will say it's much easier, and I would just refer our listeners to the the gosh, correct me if I'm wrong, the AAFLD and IDSA algorithm. Uh, is that right? I'm going to deliver society. AASLD. AASLD. Yeah. Thank you. I, IDSA, um, Simplified Treatment Algorithm. There's both with and without cirrhosis. It is one page that tells you really all you need to know that will actually get approved by most insurance companies. I will say we're talking at least, for me at least, but I'm not sure what your practice is, but this is for treatment-naive patients. If someone has yes. prior treatment and then it needs retreatment, at, at that point, I will probably cheerfully have them see our colleagues in hepatology or more likely infectious disease. So I, I just wanted to make that clear, yeah. point of clarification too. Yeah, the patients that would, yeah. So let me give you the list for people who would be simplified, would qualify for simplified treatment are people who don't have cirrhosis, uh, HIV, hepatitis B, they're non-pregnant. And uh, of course they don't have like hepatocellular carcinoma or liver transplant. I think most of us would just know not to, would know to get other people involved with those yes. patients, but just, just saying it out loud. Now, Paul, the last episode we were going to talk about, this was a a USPSTF episode number 345 talking about the vitamin and mineral supplementation recommendations. Now, Paul, uh, oh, and our guest again was Dr. Michael Barry, who was also on our colon cancer screening episode. And of course, this was produced by 
Paul Williams with the great Elena Gibson helping to produce and coordinate and do the graphics. She's fantastic. And thank you to her for all the work on those USPSTF episodes. So Paul, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I should just take as many vitamins as possible. (laughs) Um, I, I, so important always to think about who these recommendations are for, Matt. And I, I don't know your medical history. We don't, you know, we don't talk outside of work. Um, <laughs> so like this, this is specifically for people we're, we're talking just for preventive, not for people with deficiencies or actually have a specific need for a certain vitamin. So I, I just want to say that point first, I will say for you, if I'm assuming that you're as healthy as you look, which is pretty healthy, you're probably not someone who's going to benefit from vitamin supplementation. There, there are a couple that seem to actually have known harms associated with them. So specifically, um, I believe it's beta carotene and vitamin E actually are associated with some worse outcomes. But by and large, like the the data seems fairly wishy-washy for most stuff, and it's just not gonna really make any any real difference to you other than cost you a fair amount of money. Um, but the, the and I, I think that's worth noting, but the, the point that I, I really liked from this episode specifically was Dr. Barry framed this as, like this is not a way to tell patients to not do something. This is a way to have a conversation about all the things that we have available to us that can help preserve health and can actually help keep you feeling well throughout your life. Things like screening for hypertension, things like screening for diabetes and um, treatable infectious diseases and, you know, depression and substance use. Getting and on, them to on, on, sleep. On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of it. Yeah, there's just, there's so much that we can talk about that can keep you healthy and feeling good for the rest of your life. Um, so even though this might not be the best way to do it, we have plenty of options to kind of optimize your health. And I, I think framing that conversation that way, rather than just shutting the door, was practice changing in and of itself for me because I just thought that's just a yeah. fabulous way to think about it. Well, Paul, we've we've done some great work here. Upcoming in 2023, we have some really fun episodes, uh, ADHD, adult ADHD, um, delirium, acute COPD exacerbations, adrenal incidentalomas. That's been a much, much requested topic. Hemochromatosis, Paul. Uh, as I said, there's another Neff Madness coming. Hearing loss and tinnitus. Lots of great stuff, Paul. Matt, so, I'm going to do it. Are you ready for this? This is Babe Ruth. I'm calling my shot. We don't have a guest it. lined up. I'm committing myself to hematuria this year. We're doing blood and <laughs> urine. I don't have a guest. I don't have a script. But by God, now that now I have to do it. So this is we're going to make it happen. So something else. All to right. Should I call one too? I I want to do hypercoagulable workup, Paul. I'm gonna I'm love gonna it. produce that. Yeah. All right, all right. I'm excited. That, that's I I keep people keep I keep seeing people get this hypercoagulable workup. I want to find out when when I should really do it. And what do you now, do, Paul? With this let's stuff leave the audience. Let's each leave the audience with a pick of the year. So, Paul, I know I know you have a pick of the year. I I will. Can I go? No, you go first. You go first. <laughs> Sure. I and it's it's something I, I picked before, which I guess is the I, idea of this. But I my pick of the year, because it's come up a bunch of times, is actually the 1991 uh David Cronenberg movie Naked Lunch, which is science fiction kind of pretend biography of William S. Burroughs, but also based on the book by William S. Burroughs. So it's this melange of this person who kind of descends into um addiction and and madness uh, after inadvertently murdering his wife. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I feel like I'm not selling it well, but the whole thing is so <laughs> well acted and atmospheric. The soundtrack is incredible. It is, um, Peter Weller who is incredible in it as, as the lead character, William Lee. Um, the whole thing, it, it just feels, it basically, it, it just feels like you're descending into, into madness with this person and there's talking typewriters and it, and it's just, a, it's a beautiful, incredible movie that really makes you think, especially if you know the backstory of William S. Burroughs, and have read Naked Lunch, which is not a read I would recommend. But I, 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 I saw it in theaters the first time because it's been a really important movie to me. It actually played on the big screen near me. Huge. I bought the Criterion um, 
Blu-ray, gorgeous, beautifully rendered. Matt, I'm going to share a peek behind the curtain. It was nice enough to get me a birthday present of a T-shirt from the movie, which I is now my favorite article of clothing. So it's been the year of Naked Lunch. So my pick of the year will be that very specific niche thing that no one is going to like. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Naked I'm, Lunch, the 1991 uh, David Cronenberg movie. I'm very intrigued to to watch this movie now. Now, Paul, my pick of the year is is not a real pick of the year by your standards, but I just wanted to say, in I I had some tough times in the past few years, Paul, uh, and and one of the things that is like kept me sane, especially in this past year, and I think dramatically increased my happiness. I I have really been serious about my my bedtime, my wake up time. Every morning, I have a very strict morning routine. I wake up. I go for a two or three mile run. It it doesn't take super long. I make coffee. I read something and it's a great start to the day. Start the day with a just a very peaceful, quiet run. It's often in the dark. I have one of those LED headlamps. And uh that I would recommend that to the audience. If uh just have make some time, it doesn't have to be in the morning if you're not a morning person, but have some time each day where you just like you you get to do what you want to do. That way you don't feel like you're just getting stuff thrown at you and drowning in emails and patient phone calls and all the, all these things that we deal with in life. So uh, that's that was my pick of the year, Paul, which I know it's like it's like a ju- picking a jump rope, uh, Paul. No, I know it's it's better for the show if I was like mad about it or if I made fun of you. I, <laughs> I think it's I think it's really nice. I agree with you. I, I on those mornings when I get up, even when it's like dark outside and I go out for my run, when you get back, you're like, well, whatever else happens today, I have done this one good thing for myself. And like, I think you can sort yes. of incorporate a couple of those things in the morning so that no matter how your day goes, at least you got your run in, you made your bed, um, you know, you're coming home to an empty sink, whatever it is, but to kind of take a little bit of extra time in the morning so that you're the rest of your day, you had that sense of accomplishment going forward. Like it's, I, I think that's terrific. Sorry yes. that I couldn't be mean and about it. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. And it's one of the, it's one of those things where uh, it, because it is an, a decision that was made, it, it's, it's, it's already made. I don't have to think about it. I just get up, get dressed and go. And, uh, of course I look forward to the coffee and sitting down and reading something afterwards. So, uh, it is, it is nice to steal that time in the morning before the day gets going. So I, I would recommend people try that out. And Paul, with that, I think it's time to get to an outro. All right. So watch a scary movie and go for a run folks. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Great. Last one for the year. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this episode won't be available for CME because, hey, it's the end of the year and we we need a break. Uh, But lots of our episodes from this year, uh, including the ones we recap tonight, are available for CME. So check those out at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to our whole team who 
keeps the show running, helps keep Paul and I sane, uh, does all our beautiful cover art and infographics. Thank you to all of them. Too many people to name. As I said, there's over 35 people on our Slack channel. Uh, the Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And so, Paul, with all that, until next year, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.